I want to thank you. This is the first opportunity I've had since our team returned from Ecuador. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to lead the group down there. It was a blessed time. Um, you would be very proud of, of the team that, that went, the eight of us who had the opportunity to go. We spent majority of our time in the jungle camp, a little bit of time in the mountain camp, but it was a, uh, it was a blessed time. The team was a, a very hardworking team. There was a lot of, uh, should I say, manual labor <laughs> involved in, when we first got there, and so we started out exhausted. Uh, but certainly uh, the Lord kept us and strengthened us and we ended up having an amazing time while we were down there. There were so many experiences I could tell you. I could take the whole time preaching, so I won't tell you any of those. But I will tell you about one experience we had because it's applicable to, to what I'm going to be teaching about this morning. Uh, one evening they asked if anyone would be willing to uh, come up with a Bible study and share a Bible study with some of the older kids that were at the camp. And so uh, I volunteered to do so, uh, and then I got Drew and Kyle and Isaac to help me. And so Drew and I uh, taught the lessons, and Isaac translated, and Kyle helped us with the kids and prayed for us while we were teaching. And a couple of the other young ladies came down there with us while we were there. And it was just a magnificent time of being able to share with young people and see God's Word move in their life. And uh, in the midst of doing that, we told them at the end of every session that we're going to stay behind. We're going to be available if... If, if God's speaking to you through His Word, if there's anything you want to talk about, if you want somebody to pray with you, stay behind, and we'll be glad to do that. And so uh, we, we, the very first day that we did that, uh, we had a young lady uh, come up to us, and we could tell immediately that she was just brokenhearted when she came to us. And, and uh, she's 13, I, f I believe 13, 14 years old. Uh, she's on the uh, Ecuador tennis elite team, uh, whatever that means. And so... Uh, She's very successful at what she does, but she's got a lot of pressure on her because of the elite team. She began telling us a little bit about her brother. Her brother, uh, if I'm understanding her story correctly, and by the way, she was telling this, us this story through Isaac. Isaac translated for her, so she was speaking completely in Spanish. And of course, I didn't understand what she was saying, but Isaac just nailed it, got everything she said. And so we were going back and forth. And so if I understand correctly, this young girl was led to the Lord by her brother. Uh, she and her brother were supposedly the only saved persons in her family. And, uh, but somewhere along the way, you just hear recently, if I understand correctly, her brother was having trouble finding work. He was having trouble uh, getting a job. He was uh, just struggling with life. Uh, he was beginning to doubt. Uh, he was beginning to get very angry. He was beginning to cons uh, consume alcohol. He was just becoming everything that you would not expect a believer to be. And uh, this was just breaking her heart. And you could just tell, by the way, she was, she was literally hopeless. I mean, as she was sitting there talking to us, here we are, four guys. Uh, I'm 43. The other ones are younger than me. Uh, but, you know, these, these tough young men. And our hearts were breaking alongside hers because of the testimony that she was given, even to the extent where she said, just tell me what I can do. Just tell me, what can I tell my brother? What kind of hope can I give him? I, it's breaking my heart to see him this way. He was the one who led me to Christ, and now I'm seeing him this way. What can, what can I do? And you could just tell she was weeping. She was practically begging us for hope. And as we come to today's passage, we are at the very end of the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be studying 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 14, which are the very last verses of this book. And if you think back through all of the study that we've had, we, we've walked systematically through the book of 1 Peter. 
We started at the beginning of this year, and here we are fixing to go into the eighth month of the year, and we're just now completing the five chapters of this book. And, and we know that the theme of suffering and brokenheartedness has popped up from time to time. It's actually a pretty major theme in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we know that reading this book, that Peter wrote this book to those who were identified as aliens, 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, or those who were strangers and pilgrims in this world, 1 Peter 2.11. In other words, he was saying, you think of John chapter 17, they were in the world but not of the world. And so Peter meant this letter to be an encouragement to those saints. He meant this to lift them up. He meant this to exhort them in their faith to give them a hint of glory in the midst of their trials. And so if, if you think back through, just really quick look back at the last seven months that we've been studying this book, we've seen Peter speak on several things related to suffering. We've seen him speak on suffering as a trial of faith. We've seen him speak on suffering for righteousness sake. We've seen him speak on suffering to cease from sin and then just suffering in general as a Christ follower. And then interspersed within all of those themes that he talked about on suffering, we also saw him speak about Christ's role in suffering. Christ's role. What kind of role does Christ play in this theme of suffering? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23 talked about Christ's suffering as our example. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 talked about Christ's suffering for our sins. And then we, he revealed in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, we're going to look at later, but he revealed then that we too will be sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And so as we get to this point, we shouldn't have been surprised last week whenever Pastor Josh stood up here and he told us about the evil one. He told us about the devil. He told us about the one who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking that which he can devour. We shouldn't be surprised by that because the theme of suffering has been all throughout this book. And so you think back to the three points that Josh brought up last week that it behooves us to recognize the devil as our adversary. It behooves us to recognize that the devil is skilled and that he wants more than anything else to destroy us. Now think about that. If the book ended right there, if he had ended with 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that'd be pretty heavy stuff, wouldn't it? That'd be, that'd be pretty hard for us to deal with reading that book. We would sort of kind of be like that young girl who came to us in Ecuador and was sharing with us all the, the things that was going on in her life, we would be broken. We would be weeping. We would be hurting. Why? Because the devil is prowling around looking to destroy us. As aliens as strangers, our outlook would be pretty bleak. But praise be to God. Praise be to God. It's not bleak. Amen? We know from reading Scripture, we know from reading the rest of this book, we're going to read here in a minute these five verses, that Peter closes with one final exhortation. One final word of encouragement about hope. So I want to encourage you, if you would, to go ahead and take the Word of God in your hands and stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And let's finish together reading the book of 1 Peter by reading verses 10 through 14 in chapter 5. If you're ready for the Word of God this morning, say amen. amen. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Salvanus, our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. 
Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. We confess today that it is inerrant and it is infallible. And Father, we're grateful today that You have given us this encouragement through Your servant, Peter. Father, thank You for being the God of all grace. Thank You, Lord, for building us up and strengthening us and establishing us in You. Thank You, Lord, that we do not have to fear our suffering or our trials because the victory has already been won. Thank You, Lord, that we've been able to stand up and sing praises to You today, not as those who have no hope, but as those who have been promised hope and as those who rest in the hope of glory, the eternal glory that has already been promised to us as believers and followers of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that You would take Your Word today to convict us. I pray that we would be affirmed in Your Word. I pray, God, that we would grow closer to You because of what this passage teaches us today. And in the end, we pray that You will receive all of the glory and praise because You alone are worthy. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this passage by just recognizing for just a minute um, the reality and the pain of suffering. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes we come to a passage of Scripture and we, we, like I said, suffering has been a theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. I don't know if you're like me, sometimes you come to a passage and you read about suffering and you lead, read about the trials and the tribulations of someone else and you just sort of kind of put that in a category that you don't really understand. You just sort of kind of put that off and say, well, that's somebody else's trouble, that's somebody else's suffering. I want you to understand that when, when I'm talking about this this morning, I understand that this is not, suffering is not a hypothetical subject that we're talking about. Uh, there are many of you in here right now who are suffering. Uh, there are many of you in here right now who are going through various trials and tribulations and problems in your marriage, problems in your family, problems in your work, problems in your home, problems in your life. And so when we talk about suffering, let's not have the mistake of thinking on it as a hypothetical subject. As you read those verses in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, you easily see the dire situation that we are in if it were not for God. And so Peter closes out his letter by bringing the mood back up, doesn't he? He closes his letter by telling us that God knows exactly what He's doing. He closes his letter by telling us that all's not going to be lost. We know that He's in absolute control. Even in light of what he just told us about Satan. I told you we'd come back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13. Remember this. We mentioned this earlier. It says that to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with all exultation. That means that ultimately, brothers and sisters, we have something to look forward to. Ultimately, we have something to hope for. And that's what he gets to when in verses 10 and 11, and I want to share with you just really quickly this morning five characteristics of hope. Because that's what Peter is talking about at the very end of this book. He's talking about hope. He's talking about hope that's available through grace. And so I want us to look quickly at five characteristics, and the first of those being the timing of hope. The timing of hope. Look at the first few verses of, of, verse, of uh, verse 10. First few words of verse 10. After you have suffered... For a little while, that, that short phrase, those few words, gives us two very important truths. Number one, suffering is going to take place. Suffering is absolutely going to take place. And number two, suffering for the believer, the qualifier for the believer, 
is only temporary. Well, let me ask you a question. How much better would our lives be if we kept that one, those two simple truths in mind? How much better off would we be if we knew from the start that we were going to have to suffer? So that when it happened, we weren't surprised by it. My car broke down this week. I was sitting in the line at McDonald's, uh, which is just another metaphor we'll try to avoid altogether. And I'm sitting in the line at McDonald's like I do just about every morning, getting my sweet tea, and I heard something like, I heard it break. I literally heard it break. It's like something crumpling up. Oh, well, that's not good. Now, understand, I've got 178,000 miles on this car, and, and listen, I have been planning to sell that car. It, it is going on the market. And when you hear something like that, your heart just breaks, right? Well, guess what? My whole Tuesday was thrown off from that point on. It just really threw a wrench in my plans, no pun intended. And if I had known that was going to happen, I would have probably dealt with it just a little bit better. <laughs> but I didn't know. Well, guess what? Suffering and trials are going to happen in your life. And if you know that up front, then you will be ready for it just a little bit better than you would be. But for the believer, even beyond that, how much better is it for you to know that your suffering is only going to take place for a little while? Sometimes as believers, we, we almost act like we don't expect suffering to happen in our lives. It's almost, I've heard this in counseling people before. Well, I don't understand why God is allowing this to happen. Or, I don't understand why this is taking place. Or, I just don't, I don't believe, I, can't, I just have trouble believing that God would make me go through this. Well, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I believe a lot of that comes from the prosperity gospel that's becoming so prevalent in America. Now, praise be to God, amen. This pulpit does not contain the prosperity gospel, Amen. We're proud that, that we teach every ounce of Scripture and only Scripture from this pulpit and not a prosperity gospel. But because it's so prevalent, you can turn on TV, you can listen to it on the radio, I believe that the tentacles of the prosperity gospel have reached out even into the true church today and, and, and caused us to believe to some degree that we shouldn't have to go through suffering. We shouldn't have that. Well, God, who, a God of love would not cause us to do that. But that contradicts everything that Peter has been talking about in his passage here. That kind of mindset causes us to ask God and sometimes question His motives, which is not a healthy thing to take place. We know what's going on in our country today. A lot of, we talked a lot, I've talked to a lot of you about just sort of the consternation and fear that we have because of some Supreme Court decisions and some things that are taking place in the, in the media. Uh, you know, the, the threat to religious liberty and those kind of things. And we shouldn't agonize over those things. We should recognize that they may take place, but we shouldn't agonize about those kind of things. Or be surprised that God would allow those kind of things to happen. In fact, if you go back and study Christian history, if you go back and look over the 2,000 years of, of church history, you'll see that the church has been persecuted and under fire and in the midst of suffering far more than it's been in the midst of prosperity and comfort. Far more. So we shouldn't be surprised when these things happen. But then second, and even more important than not being surprised, is realizing that our hope Rest in the fact that these things are only temporary. These things are going to only last for a little bit. And Scripture confirms this. Don't Are we glad that Scripture confirms itself? First Peter, earlier in this book, 1 Peter 1.6, Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice. Well, what does Peter greatly rejoice in? He rejoices that even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by trials. So you're going to have to go through it, but it's only going to last a little while. Paul echoes this sentiment when he's writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond 
any comparison or all comparison. See, no matter how long or how protracted your suffering is, no matter how terrible it seems when you're in the midst of the furnace, so to speak, you can always rest on the promise as a believer, as someone who has been called and set apart as a Christ follower, you can always rest on the promise that this affliction is light and momentary when compared, and here's the important thing, if you're listening to me, say amen. That affliction is light and momentary when compared to the glory of God that you will rest in for eternity. If only we could remember that, church. If only we could grasp that and hold on to that. Trials are going to come, but the trials are going to come in God's timing. And just like the, tri the trials in your life come in God's timing, they're also going to be taken care of in God's timing. And friends, that should give us hope. Amen? First characteristic of hope, the timing of hope. The second characteristic of hope is the provider of hope. Look at the next five words of verse 10. The God of all grace. And it seems a little silly that I would even have to stand up here and tell you that the provider of hope is the God of all grace. But that verse involves a couple of qualifiers that I think it's important that we understand. As believers, we understand that God has promised us grace and salvation. Amen? We understand that God has promised us grace for eternity. We also need to understand that God promises grace. He promises us hope in the midst of our present circumstances. Whatever you're going through in your life, whatever that trial is, whatever just popped in your mind right now, God offers you grace and hope in the midst of whatever that is, if you're willing to rest in it. It's important for us to remember that, that Paul himself repeated this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul identified himself as a partaker of grace. He wrote that while he was imprisoned. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, believers are instructed. We're going to come back to this verse, so keep this in mind. Hebrews 4, 16, believers are instructed. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We sang some songs that referenced that earlier today, didn't we? So glad Micah chooses songs that go along with the text that we're studying. See, just that verse, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, if you back up a couple of verses, it describes Christ, the one who passed through the heavens, the one who endured temptation, the one who is acquainted with our weaknesses, now intercedes for us as the high priest. We need to remember that, that the God of all grace, through the person of Christ, understands what we're going through. And just like we find grace through faith in Him for salvation, we find grace or hope from Him in our present circumstances. Before we go on, I think it's also important that we don't overlook that word all. The God of all grace, which indicates that whatever it is that's needed to bring you through this trial in your life, whatever it is to bring you through this, this situation that you're going through, He's sufficient to take care of every bit of it. Right? God doesn't have to go ask permission from anyone else. God doesn't have to go gather something from anyone else. God doesn't have to call upon anyone else to help bring you through that fire. God has the ability in and on His own accord because of who He is and because He has dominion to give you all grace throughout your situation. Let me ask you something. Whom or what are you trusting on? Who or what are you trusting on to get you through that fire in your life right now? 
You ever stop to think about that question? Is it the, the, the churchy answer is to say God, right? But really, are you trusting in your spouse? Are you trusting in one of your children? Young people, are you trusting in your parents? Maybe you're trusting in a doctor. Maybe you're trusting in medicine. Maybe you're trusting in something like alcohol. Maybe you're trusting in somebody who's a dear friend, a trusted friend. Perhaps you're trusting in somebody on TV who comes on in the afternoons and proclaims himself to be an expert and sounds good. Can I tell you something? God can use every one of those things except for alcohol. God may use every one of those things as an instrument to draw you near to Him and to help you, but ultimately... It's the God of all grace who supplies for you what you need to get through that fire. And while you can go look for godly people, and we'll talk about more about that in a minute, and you should, what you need to do more than anything is to search the riches of God's Word. What you need to do is trust in the people who God is putting in your life, godly people who know the Word of God, to be able... To help you through it. A lot of times as Christians, we're like those men. Is there any man in this room that likes to go to the doctor? Okay. We don't, do we? If, if we got to go to the doctor, we're going to go kicking and screaming. All right. Jennifer, so Jen, Jennifer, well, if you had gone to the doctor three weeks ago, you'd be over that cough, right? We don't like to go to the doctor. I had a friend in Tennessee. She wasn't a close friend. She was more of an acquaintance. And a couple of weeks ago, or a few weeks ago, she began having breathing problems. She could, just couldn't get her breath, and it kept getting worse and worse, and she refused to go to the doctor. Uh, about, uh, I guess it's about uh, sometime when we were in Ecuador, um, word came that she was at her house just struggling to breathe so much that she had to lay flat on her back on the floor in her home. And so she did that for a while, and then when she went to roll over, the fluid that had obviously been building up in her lungs that she didn't go and have checked out, suffocated her. She died. She died because she did not go and have that looked at. She, she refused to go and have that checked. She didn't even know that she had fluid on her lungs. She didn't know what was fixing to happen to her. But when she rolled over, literally, her bodily functions were suffocated by what took place in her life. Friends, that's no different than you and me trying to get through the fire and the trials and the suffering in our life on our own, or trusting primarily in something else other than God. Why would we do that? I look back now at this lady's life, and she was, she was probably late 50s, early 60s, and I look back at her life and I said, well, why didn't you go? It was so obvious that you were hurting. Why wouldn't you go and have that checked out? Well, brothers and sisters, why would you and I trust in anything other than the grace of God? to supply us hope, and to bring us through our suffering. Don't be suffocated by your trial. Trust in Him for your present circumstances, just like you trusted in Him for your salvation. Amen? The third characteristic of hope. Again, very obvious. The third characteristic of hope is the recipients of hope. And the recipients of hope are those who have been called to His eternal glory in Christ. 
One of my favorite Bible commentators is Warren Wiersbe. And Warren Wiersbe says this, whatever begins with God's grace will always lead to God's glory. Whatever begins with God's grace will always lead to God's glory. And think about that from a, from a common sense perspective. Doesn't it make sense that if God was going to call you out of the darkness and into the light, and doesn't it make sense that if God was going to transform you from an enemy of God to a child of God, and doesn't it make sense that if He was going to make you a new person in Christ Jesus, then doesn't it make sense that He's going to preserve you and grant you grace to make it through the things that He already knows you're going to have to go through in this life? And Peter had already spent a large part of his letter reminding his listeners that they had been called. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 calls them chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says that they are called by the Holy One. Chapter 2, verse 9, he reminds them that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, royal, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And chapter 3, verse 9 reminds him that they are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So why would God say all those things about calling them to Himself and then not provide hope for them? I'm going to provide everything that my children need to sustain them in life. Why? Because they are my children. Because I love them. Because God has placed me with them and them with me. And so I'm going to provide for them. Why would God not provide hope for those to whom He has called and set apart? You might think of it this way. When an unbeliever goes through suffering... He loses hope because he has no one to look to and nothing to look forward to. But when a believer goes through suffering, his hope should increase because he has the God of all grace to look to and the eternal glory to look forward to. Brothers and sisters, don't get fooled into thinking that you don't have anyone to look forward to. You are the recipient of hope. You are the recipient of of grace from the God of all grace. And that ought to make you excited. That ought to make you, even in the midst of your trial, have hope and be able to lift your eyes and rest and trust in Him. Amen? If you've been truly called, then you truly have hope. Think through that the next time that you get down about your circumstances. So the five characteristics of hope. Number one, the timing of hope. Number two, the provider of hope. Number three, the recipient of hope. And number four, and we're going to camp out here for just a minute, the effects of hope. The effects of hope. The Bible says, verse 10 says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And this is sanctification in the life of a believer. This is part of sanctification in the life of a believer. This is the part of your maturation in Christ. And God uses a variety of things. If you listen to me, wave at me. God uses a variety of things, doesn't He? to draw you to Himself, to mature you, to make you more into His image. He uses His Word. Amen? I hope that you don't come to church and listen to Scripture every single Sunday and walk out of here completely unchanged. Why? Because He intends for His Word to shape and form and transform you. So you should be changed by His Word. You should be matured through your participation in this body of believers. As a member of First Baptist Church Fairdale, our time together should be edifying. You should be able to grow. You should be able to be excited about uh, the things that God is using other people to do in your life. And God is using your spiritual gifts to invest in the life of someone else. And so God uses community, His church, to spiritual and mature us. And this 
passage here reveals to us that God also uses suffering. You wonder why these things are happening? You wonder why God has us go through these times? I'm sure Peter's listeners here wondered, why, why are we having to go through this? Well, it could be that he's going to use suffering to mature you. I think Josh has used this passage two or three times throughout our time together in 1 Peter. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Paul was able to say with confidence, we also rejoice in our tribulations. Why, why do you rejoice in your tribulations? Anybody in here able to rejoice when you're going through the fire, going through something difficult? Paul says, we rejoice in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint. That's not the kind of hope that we just sit around and say, well, gee, I hope we go, to go out to eat after church today. You know, like my kids do every single Sunday. It's not that kind of hope. The hope that Paul is referring to here and the grace that, Paul, that Peter's referring to in 1 Peter chapter 5 is an absolute certainty that God is in control. He's sovereign. He's going to take care of things. That kind of hope does not disappoint. Now, he uses four verbs in the end of verse 10 that pretty much mean almost the same thing to tell us how he does that. So when we're talking about the effects of hope, listen to what these four verbs talk about. First of all, he uses the word perfect, which means to bring together. It's the idea of mending a net. If you think back to Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus is, is calling his disciples and he goes to the seashore. What does he find the fishermen doing? He finds them down there mending their net. It's the same idea of, of when, he's, when God is perfecting something in your life. He's mending the net. He's bringing it together. He's pulling it close. That word confirm means to set fast or firmly. Unlike my basketball goal at home, which a couple of years ago I set up, it's one of those adjustable going up and down goals, and so I set it up and I told the kids, no dunking on the goal. Well, guess what? Andrew's not here anymore. Andrew's here now. And uh, he doesn't even need to lower the goal much anymore to be able to dunk the thing. So now my basketball goal is looking a little bit that way. Guess what? I thought I'd set it firmly, but I had not set it firmly. When God confirms something according to this passage, what He's doing is He's setting it absolutely firm and unmovable. That word strengthen means exactly what you would think it means, to make something sturdy. And that word establish means to lay a foundation. All four of those verbs mean the same thing. In the life of the believer, God can use this suffering to lay a foundation in your life that is unmovable, unshakable, unbreakable, and reliable for you regardless of what's going on in your life. Jennifer and I celebrated our anniversary this week. And I won't tell you how many because that just makes me look old. And uh, we went down to the Ohio what is it called? Ohio River Bridges Project. That's what they're doing there. We went down to the walking bridge anyway. And we were walking and we were looking at the progress. And I hadn't been down there probably in a year. And the progress that they're making on that new bridge across the Ohio River is pretty remarkable. They've got uh, all of the foundations are in place. I, I, forgive me, I don't know what these things are called, so you'll understand what I'm talking about. But all of, the, all of the big towers are in place, and they're now beginning to lay the road, long stretches of the road. They've got some suspension cables there to help with that. It's starting to take shape. It actually looks like a road now. And so, but guess what? They would not be able to build those platforms on which they're going to lay pavement, on which cars can drive across. They would not be able to lay those things if those foundations had not been set. And not just set, but they're embedded deep into the Ohio River, right? 
I mean, those things are supposedly unshakable and unmovable. And that bridge would not be able to be a reality if that had not already taken place, if those steel trusses and those massive steel structures had not been constructed first. It's taken them two years to get this far. But guess what? One of these days, I'm going to drive over that bridge and I'm going to have complete confidence because it's taken them so long to do it. And because I've actually been able to stand, sit there and watch them do it, I'm going to have great confidence crossing that bridge because of its foundation. Well, brothers and sisters, if your foundation's in Christ Jesus, then whatever it is in your life that He brings, whatever it is in your life that happens that God allows you to go through, you should have absolute perfect confidence that God's going to bring you through that. Why? Because He's the God of all grace and His grace is sufficient to bring us through it. So we see God uses His Word. He uses the church. He even uses trials and tribulations to set the foundation in our life so that hope is ultimately found in only God. And this is important because if your hope is placed in anything else, then you're probably in a little bit of trouble. If your hope's in anything other than God or primarily God, now again, you can find help from other sources, but ultimate hope can only come from God because He's the God of all grace. If you put your hope in anything else, it's not going to last. Debated whether to tell you guys this story or not because it sort of makes us look bad. We grew up in southern middle Tennessee, so you'd think we'd know how to plant a garden. Amen? We, uh, isn't that what you do if you grow up in the south? Everybody's supposed to know how to do a garden. Jennifer has been, we've been married for many years now. She's wanted a garden for every single year that we've been married. And uh, I don't know. My grandparents had a garden. I, I didn't get a lot out of the garden. No, I did. I mean, a lot of, a lot of vegetables, fruit, and stuff like that. But uh, I, I just never have seen one. Well, she's every year in the spring, I want a garden. I want a garden. Well, I've always been able to say, well, our yard, when we were in Chicago, we didn't have a yard, so we didn't have to worry about it. And when we moved up here, now we've got like, uh, we've got a trampoline and basketball going in the backyard, so I'm able to put this off. Well, we didn't got room for a garden in our backyard. So what we did, we came to, a, we came to a, an agreement this year. She went and got some of these little potted things, you know, these long potted uh, whatever pots. And she, <laughs> she put a lot of the stuff for her garden in there. Uh, she put uh, tomatoes in there. She put peppers in there. Uh, I, I'm going to say squash. I don't know if squash is in there because I don't know my garden very well. She, she put all kinds of things in there. Watermelon. She put watermelon in there. And uh, so they're portable. You know, we can move them around. And we started out the, the spring by watering them and doing everything you're supposed to do for a garden. Well, I was gone to Ecuador. Andrew's been taking care of the yard. I hadn't been in the backyard. I went to the backyard yesterday, and those things are pathetic. They're horrible. Uh, I don't eat that kind of stuff anyway, but even if I did, I wouldn't eat them. I mean, there were some shriveled up tomatoes in there. Uh, there was one tomato. There was one really good tomato. It's about that big around. And uh, pick that thing before it goes away. Um, there was uh, watermelons about the size of your fist. Now, I, don't, I don't know how quickly watermelons grow. Maybe they're supposed to be the size of your fist this time of year, but they didn't look like they were any watermelon I'd ever seen before. And there were one or two good peppers, sweetheart, that you ought to go home and pick before they go bad as well. And uh, So you know what? The, 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 our garden's pathetic, and there's multiple reasons for that. The reasons our garden is pathetic is because um, one time we had them sitting in the sun. They probably got too much sun. It's rained a lot, and we probably set them somewhere where they were in a downspout or something and got too much water. Uh, but you know the main reason I think our garden didn't succeed? Why do you think our garden didn't succeed this year? Because we didn't do it right. 
It wasn't planted where it was supposed to be planted. It didn't have a proper foundation. It wasn't set properly. Some things grew. We got some good things out of that. But it didn't do what it intended to do. Well, let me ask you something in your life. It says here that the God of all grace is willing to He Himself confirm you, strengthen you. What's the word says? Perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Are you letting Him do that in your life? You'll know the next time you go through a trial. You'll know the next time the heat's turned up. You'll know the next time there's a fiery situation in your life and you're called to respond to it. Are you confirmed and established in Him? Or are you trying to do it some other way? Peter says here, why would you do it any other way? But yet, even as believers... We do. Through the counsel of God's Word, through trusting and working with God's people, allow yourself to be strengthened by God's grace. If you do this diligently and confidently, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 promises that you will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And all of God's people said, Amen. The fifth characteristic of hope. Number one, the timing of hope. Number two, the provider of hope. That's the God of all grace. Number three, the recipients of hope. That's those whom He has called. Number four, the effects of hope. That is the perfecting, confirming, strengthening, and establishing us in Him. And number five, the response of hope. Look at verse 11. What should be your response to hope when God reveals it in your life? To Him be dominion forever and ever. See, in response to this instruction that Peter's given them, that Peter has given them, what he did was he broke out in doxology. That's what that is. To God be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's like God coming into us and we're worshiping and we sing a doxology to Him. What are we doing? We are shouting an affirmation to Him. We are shouting an agreement to Him because of what He has revealed about Himself. And likewise, that is what Peter is saying here is God does this in your life. What should your response be to God showing up in your life and, and, and rescuing you and providing for you in the midst of your trial? You should understand that praise and worship is the proper response to what God does in your life. And who all do we praise and worship whenever things get good? When is the last time you actually stopped and praised and worshiped God because He brought you through a fiery trial. Well, we'll thank so-and-so for, for meeting us, or we'll thank so-and-so for providing for us, or, or we'll recognize this, or we'll recognize that. When is the last time you hit your knees in thankfulness to God for bringing you through a trial? The only way you'll do that is if you recognize Him as the God of all glory. The only way you'll do that is if you recognize Him properly and His role, sovereign role in your life. That word dominion right there, Peter didn't use that word by accident. That word dominion points toward God's strength. It points toward God's sovereignty. It points toward God's dominance. It points toward God being over all things, including your trial, including your tribulation, including your struggle. And when God brings you through that, you should recognize His ability to do that by shouting a praise to Him. Peter reminds them, that the God of all glory, the one who will come to them after a little while, the one who will sanctify them through their trials, is the only one worthy of our praise. When He brings us through a trial, He brings us through it triumphantly, doesn't He? We can trust that 
We've had to go through that for a reason. We've had to go through that for a purpose. And now we're stronger after coming through it than we were before. But sometimes we don't want to do that. And that's to our shame. That's to our shame. Peter closes verses 12 through 14 just really quickly. He closes with a benediction in which he mentions a couple of people that you probably recognize. Sylvanus that he talks about in verse 12 is in all likelihood at Silas. It's the Silas that we see traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys. And in this instance, Silas or Sylvanus was actually Peter's secretary to write this letter. And so it says in verse 12 that through Sylvanus, I have written to you briefly. That means that Peter probably wrote exactly, I mean, uh, uh, Silas wrote what Peter was saying here. Uh, he mentions Babylon in verse 13, which is Babylon is probably, uh, most Bible commentators say, a code name for the church at Rome. Uh, the church at Rome, like any other group of believers at this time, were going through tough times. They were going through some, the beginning pains of persecution. And so to protect them, he may have used a code name to describe the church at Rome. We know that whatever that is, that reference to Babylon refers to somebody that's saved or to a group of, of believers because it says that they were chosen together with you. So we know that, that this group of believers probably going through the very same thing that Peter's readers or Peter's listeners were going through. You see Mark mentioned at the end of chapter 13. That's probably John Mark who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. And then they had a, a parting of ways. And so he mentions John Mark also bringing in greetings. But I want us to look back as we close today. Peter gives one last statement in verse 12. One final exhortation that really sums up the whole book. When you think about all the things we talked about this morning and all the things we've studied the last few months in the book of 1 Peter, look at this phrase he says in verse 12. After he talks about Silas, he says, exhorting and testifying. This is Peter. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's referring to the totality of this letter. He's saying, stand firm in your righteousness before God. Stand firm and cease from your sin. Stand firm in the trials of your faith. Stand firm in the trials of your life. He gave him the same instruction. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he gave him the same instruction earlier. Five, verses, eight, uh, verses 9, I'm sorry. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. He gave very similar instructions. And one of my favorite passages of Scripture, if you'll remember a few months ago, we studied the whole armor of God. Uh, we went through a sermon series on Sunday evening. And one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, where he gives, Paul gives a very similar instruction to the church at Ephesus to what Peter was giving these believers here. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in verse 13 he says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. He begins verse 14 with the same instruction to stand firm. Are you standing firm this morning? You'll only know if you're going through a trial or if you've been through a trial and you can honestly and truly look back at what you've trusted in. Are you standing firm this morning? The believer has a responsibility to look primarily to God. Just as you trusted in God for your salvation, 
you should trust in Him for help and for hope in your present circumstances. If God can save you from where you were from, God can bring you through what you're in now. Amen? But that's only if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, according to the passage we've studied this morning, you have no one to look forward to and nothing to look forward to. The Bible says that your sin has separated you from God. The Bible tells us that your sin has not only separated you from God, but it's made you an enemy of God. But i got good news for you. Amen, Pat? God sent Jesus to die for your sins. It's not His will that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. The Bible says that Jesus bore the wrath of God that you deserve. The stripes that you deserved, He took upon Himself. The penalty for your sin, He willingly took so that you wouldn't have to. And as an unbeliever, as someone who's never done that before, your only response to that, the only way that you can experience the hope that we've been talking about and the grace that we've been talking about is for you to repent of your sins, surrender your life to Him, and come to Christ. You've got to become a Christ follower. I'm encouraged while we've come to the end of 1 Peter. I'm encouraged that even though I've been told that suffering is going to take place, I know it's only going to take place for a little while. I'm encouraged because as big and as tough as I like to think that I am, I know that there's one who is the God of all glory who is completely sufficient and able to take care of anything that I'm going through. I'm encouraged because I've been called. Praise the Lord. I've been called to be a follower of God. Because I've surrendered my life to Him, I have the hope of eternal glory. And because I've surrendered my life to Him, I know that there is a foundation in my life. I'm being perfected. I'm being established. I'm being confirmed. I'm being strengthened. I'm becoming more and more like Him. So that when trials come in my life, and that fire gets really hot, I've got somebody to turn to. And my response, not only to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10-14, through 14, but the entire book of 1 Peter is to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Trust in God. Don't trust in yourself. Let Him bring you through the fire. It's called hope through grace. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your promises. Thank You, Lord, that I am not dependent upon my own devices, my own personality, my own abilities, my own strengths, my own concoctions to get through the struggles in my life. Lord, even though those trials are promised, I know that, Lord, You are sufficient to bring me through every one of them. And not only sufficient to bring me through them, but You've promised to strengthen me in the midst of them. To God be the glory for that. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's somebody here tonight who doesn't, uh, hasn't come to the realization or the understanding that they can trust completely and totally on You, Father, I pray You'd grant them eyes to see and ears to hear, 
and to understand exactly what that looks like in their life. And God, I pray that they'll trust in the God of their salvation to be their rescuer in the midst of their trial. And God, if there's one here who doesn't know you tonight, they, they, they don't have the promise, they don't have the security of knowing that you're going to bring them through trials in their life. Father, I pray that they would begin by first recognizing their sin. And God, I pray that you would impart to them a desire to be born again, a desire to become a child of God, a desire to depend on you for everything in their life. And then, Lord, give them the, the grace to grow and to become more like you, to be sanctified so that they'll trust in you more and more. Lord, thank you for the study that we've had in 1 Peter. Father, I pray that your will would be done in our midst this morning for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask you to stand with me. If there's anyone here who...